Well, this Easter Sunday, my goal is to turn every one of you into a doubter. Yes, you heard me correctly. My goal is to turn every one of you into a doubter. Now, close your mouths, pick yourself up off of the floor, because I do realize that this Sunday, above all Sundays, is the Sunday for certainty. Preachers are supposed to stand in front of their congregations and give them the irrefutable facts of the, resur- of the resurrection, uh, the, the hard evidence that Jesus did indeed rise again from the dead. Because we realize that if anyone who is not yet a believer in Christ is ever going to come to church, then it's on this Sunday, right? It's this Sunday, you got one shot, hit them with the facts. This is a Sunday about certainty. But faith is about more than facts. Certainly, the facts are and must be irrefutable. But it takes more than facts to grow our faith. Because what happens when our life experience makes us doubt those facts? I bet there are some of you here this morning that used to experience the joy that Jesus promises And you don't have that joy anymore, and so you began to doubt. I bet there's some of you here who used to experience the peace that Christ promises, the peace that goes beyond understanding, but you don't experience that peace anymore, and so you doubt. Maybe once it was easy for you to believe that what Jesus required was right and good, but now you look at our world and the way it is, and you doubt, you, you wonder if Jesus can still be trusted to know what's right. So, on this Sunday, usually reserved for certainty and facts, I want to tell you it's okay. It's even potentially good for you to join another group of doubters, but only because of what doubters do. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, what we're going to discover as we come once again to the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, in, in some form, the, the passage is also printed in your bulletin. So when you found Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear, read together, the word of the risen and resurrected Christ. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, Oh, we we pray that you would once again show yourself faithful on our behalf. You promise that when your word is 
read and heard that and that place is blessing, so we seek your blessing on us once again as we come to your word. Father, we ask that through the power of your spirit, uh, we would come openly, we would come honestly, and we would come before your word uh, willing and eager to change. We need you to do this good work in us, and so we pray that you would through the truth of your word and the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, my father used to say to my grandmother, not his mother, but his mother-in-law, don't confuse her with facts. Her mind is made up. Now, not only did my father say this about my grandmother, he often said this directly to my grandmother. So, yes, that made for some interesting family dinners. Oh, the stories I could tell. So, before I talk about doubt, I I want to assuage the fears of the fact-minded among you this morning, that I am squandering an opportunity. I really can't interpret some things, but, but I will tell you that uh, a visitor this morning walked right out in the middle of this service. I don't know why, but hold on to the end. Don't walk out on me. Because here's some facts, a fact about facts. When facts are inconvenient to people, when facts are inconvenient to the narrative we want to write, When facts are inconvenient to the agenda we seek to accomplish, then you know what we do, what people do. We simply ignore the facts, alter the facts, deny the facts, or even bury the facts. And the reality is that if the facts about Jesus are not convenient to a person, they can ignore them, alter them, Deny them or bury them. If I had read verses 11 through 15 this morning, you would have heard the story of the soldiers who guarded the tomb of Jesus. Now, these soldiers knew the facts. They had felt the earth shake under their feet during that earthquake. And they had seen that angel that appeared to them as lightning. Come and roll away the stone. And they knew that Jesus' tomb was empty. And even though they were crusty, battle-hardened soldiers, they trembled. They were like dead men before the facts. However, those facts were neither convenient nor conducive to keeping these soldiers alive. So they were willing to alter the facts. Instead of telling the truth about the empty tomb, about the angel, about the earthquake, they simply said that they fell asleep on duty and that Jesus' disciples had come and stolen his body away. Now, how sleeping men can identify thieves remains a mystery. The fact is that facts can be ignored Altered, denied, or buried. The Gospels are full of accounts 
of Jesus' religious enemies ignoring, altering, denying, burying the facts about Jesus. Look, they had witnessed Jesus' miraculous healings. It didn't change them. They had heard Jesus call people to come to life again, and those dead people came to life again. It didn't change them. They had seen the amazement on people's faces and heard the astonishment in their voices when Jesus spoke the truth about the Word of God. Truth that was in accordance with God's Word as He intended it to be, but that fact did not change them either. And so that's why I don't want to focus on facts this morning, as important as they may be to me. Faith is absolutely built on facts, but it takes more than interacting with facts for faith to grow. The Petri dish for growing faith can actually be doubt because of what doubters do. Now look again with me in verse 17. Matthew writes, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's good. But some doubted. That's not so good. Isn't that what we believe about doubt? That that doubt's not a good thing? Haven't we been conditioned, even inside the church, to deny doubt, to pretend we don't have it? Surely, surely a disciple could not doubt, should not doubt, must not doubt. The possibility of doubt in a disciple is so disturbing that many attempt to deny the doubt. Many commentators, they make valiant efforts to get this doubt monkey (laughs) off of the disciples' back. Let go, let go. Because if the disciples doubt, more specifically, disciples who then become the apostles, if they're doubters, What hope is there for the rest of us? One commentator writes, It's difficult to think that the doubt was coming from the 11, considering all that had happened to them during the recent past. It's not easy to see how the doubters could have been some of the 11 after the dramatic removal of Thomas's doubt. Remember when Jesus said to Thomas, "Touch, put your hand here and here? See, the assumption is this. That that once doubt has been dealt with, one time, when the facts are made clear, then doubt should be forever banished. But again, I say that doubt is good because of what doubters do. Another commentator writes this. Many solutions have been offered with respect to this problem, and this problem is doubt among the 11 disciples. Could it be that the most simple answer is also the best? Namely, that at first, this mysterious person appears to them from a a considerable distance. He then steps close, and the doubt disappeared. Though, this is not recorded in so many words. So, see what's happening here? Doubt is accounted for. Because the disciples just didn't have good distance vision, right? 
the assumption seems to be that if they could have just seen that it was Jesus coming toward them, then they would have never doubted in the first place. And so the solution for that doubt is just LASIK surgery. And by the way, these commentators, these are men I I deeply uh, respect, way smarter than I am. Here's another attempt to get doubting disciples off the hook. In, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul re- records a list of those people to whom the resurrected Christ appeared. And he, he says he appeared to Peter, then the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So now, some say, ah, oh, this moment of doubt on the mountain, this is when he appeared to the 500. And so the doubters were among those 500 people. Here's one more, last attempt I'll mention. Up in verse 10, uh, we, we, we read the words of Jesus. He appeared first to these women on Easter Sunday morning. We know that story. And he said to the women, now go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. I will see them there. And so many say, oh, when Jesus says my brothers, he's referring to, to a big group of people. And so the doubters were among that larger group and not the 11 disciples. But neither of these last two explanations really offer us any help for the problem. Because in the Corinthians passage, Paul refers to them as brothers. Jesus, in his command, refers to them as my brothers. So whoever they are, they are brothers. Hello, disciples. So we still have doubting disciples. It seems plain to me that the antecedent of they, and they doubted, in verse 17, is clearly the 11 disciples who are mentioned in verse 16. Now, I'm sure. Raise your hand. Have I wearied you? Have I wearied you recounting all the attempts to deny the doubt here. I hope so, because I want you to feel that weariness. Because it's wearisome to attempt to deny doubt. So don't do it. Doubt can be a good thing because of what doubters do. Now I keep saying that. So now it's time for me to demonstrate what exactly is it that doubters do. The only other time this word doubt is used in the New Testament is also by Matthew back in chapter 14 when he tells the story about Peter walking on the water. And you know that story. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. A.m. morning, a little redundant. The disciples are alone in a boat The boat's being pounded by wind and waves. They see someone walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. They're terrified until Jesus speaks. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm here. And Peter answered, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water, on the water toward Jesus. But... When he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified, and he began to sink. Now, Jesus refers to this as doubt. Then Peter shouted, 
Save me, Lord. So let's follow the progression here of what doubters do. First of all, doubters deal with the facts. And, and Peter believed the facts that he knew about Jesus. He believed Jesus was powerful. He had seen Jesus use that power. And so if Jesus says, walk on water, he believed he could walk on water. Based on the facts, Peter got out of the boat. Facts first. But then secondly comes the doubt. Because suddenly it's Peter's feet on the water. The wind is blowing in Peter's face. The waves are tossing all about Peter. And in this moment, when his life is in the spotlight, he doubted the fact that he knew that Jesus was powerful and could do the miraculous in that moment. And so he began to sink. So facts first, then doubt, then thirdly. And this is the good part. Peter looked to Jesus. He cried out to him, a person, not a fact. And that's what doubters do. Doubters look to Jesus, the Jesus of the facts. And they ask, who are you, Jesus, in the midst of my doubt? See, the doubtful Peter discovered in that moment that moment when he's with the person of Jesus, that Jesus actually was his rescuer in the midst of his doubt because Jesus reached out his hand. That's what he did. When Peter was sinking, Jesus reached out his hand and lifted him up. Now, Peter might have sung Psalm 144 lots of times in his life, in the synagogue, maybe in the temple. Maybe he sang this verse of Psalm 144. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. And Peter might have factually stated that to others. The Lord can deliver thee from many waters. It's a good Presbyterian voice, right? Wait, Peter is Jewish. Never mind. But Peter doubted until the Lord took his hand. And immediately, immediately after Jesus rescued Peter, he asked him this question. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Here's the great thing about this question. Jesus did not deny the fact that Peter had doubt. He didn't suggest to Peter that he deny the fact that he had doubt. Jesus didn't say, listen, Peter, with all the wind and all the waves, the guys on the boat, they don't know you doubt it. Let's just forget all about it. Let's let's just pretend like this never happened. No. Jesus calls Peter to, to probe his doubt, to wrestle with it. That's why he asks him why. But you see what's happening. Peter's not alone. He's in conversation with the person of Christ. Together, they're working it out. Jesus asking the questions, Peter answering them. This is the good thing that doubters must do. 
This is a, the good thing that you must do, that I must do. We have to have a personal conversation with Jesus about the facts. And that's why I say I want us to be doubters this morning. So that we go to the person of Christ. This would probably be a good time for me to define this word doubt as Matthew uses it here. He doesn't mean disbelief. Doubt here means to waver or to hesitate. To waver or to hesitate. It means to be uncertain about taking a particular course of action. So you see here on the mountain, the the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus in front of them, but they hesitated. They wavered. And perhaps they hesitated because they were hedging. That's what we do as humans, isn't it? We, We like to hedge. Sometimes we're not open. Sometimes we're not honest until we know what that honesty means for us. If I don't hesitate... If I don't waver, if I don't doubt, if I just flat out commit, what will be required of me? Sometimes we're not going to be honest until we know the answer to that question. And for these disciples who never really quite got Jesus, who never understood who he was or what he was doing, hesitation is a very real possibility. Because Jesus once looked out over 5,000 people, 5,000 men. That does include the women and children. And he turned to the penniless, empty-handed disciples, and he said, you feed them. (laughs) What? That's what he asked them to do. What might a resurrected Jesus then ask them to do? (laughs) They're getting ready to find out, aren't they, in the next verse. But there's hesitation. There's doubting. There's wavering. Implications make us hesitators, doubters whether it's implications about the truth. Lord, if I accept this truth, if I believe this truth, what does that mean for my life and my relationships? Maybe it's uh, a doubt or hesitation about an action. Lord, if I do this for you, if I walk in obedience to you, what does that mean for me? But doubt's good because of what doubters do and doubters go to Jesus. You know what? You don't know what, but I'm going to tell you what. Matthew could have written verse 17 like this. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, period. And Matthew could have left out, edited out those three words, but some doubted. Especially if the explanation for the doubt were just that they had poor distance vision. Why waste valuable ink and parchment recording that detail? Or if the explanation is that the doubters were indeed some insignificant, unknown, forgotten disciples, why bother wasting valuable ink or parchment recording that detail? Besides that, without this detail about doubt, the disciples look more noble, don't they? more faithful. They would garner more respect wherever they went than they would if people knew that deep down inside they were really doubters. Matthew records this detail because it really happened, because it's true. 
And that doubt must have been discovered as the disciples talked among themselves afterward. Some of them must have confessed, you know that moment when we were on the mountain and we were worshiping in the Lord? I got to tell you, in that moment, even though I was worshiping, I doubted. I was hesitating. I was wavering. And it was okay to admit it. And, of course, the Holy Spirit of God, the true author of Scripture, inspired Matthew to include this fact because he knew it would be helpful for us. I do have to laugh a little, though, for as bold as Matthew is here to write, some doubted, he's also careful not to identify the doubters. <laughs> he doesn't name them by name because maybe he was one of them. And maybe Matthew knows that doubt among believers usually carries a stigma. Doubt suggests that your faith is weak. Sometimes doubters are shunned, usually always corrected, and probably forever held suspect. Maybe Matthew could hear the whispers. You don't want to go hear Matthew speak tonight. He was one of those doubters. Oh, okay, I'll go hear Andrew. Andrew? You can't go hear Andrew. Andrew was also one of those doubters. Maybe that's why we still hesitate to be honest about our doubts. And that's a shame. Because even though we are disturbed by doubt, even though some part of us believes we should not have it, such great things can emerge from our doubt. Because honest doubt drives us to FaceTime with Jesus. And that's why I preach about doubt or in praise of doubt. We can affirm the facts about Jesus once and never revisit them again. But doubt drives you to deal with the person of Jesus. Lord, what does this truth mean? What do these facts mean now? Lord, I'm not sure I, I believe these facts. Let's talk about my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And so here's the thing. If I, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can get you to join with me in dealing not just with the facts about Jesus, but spending time with him face to face, then I will die a very happy and satisfied man because I know that I know that I know that I know that Jesus will take care of the rest. In this, I have no doubt. I know that Jesus will deal faithfully with all who come to him. And I know that whatever it looks like for him to stretch out his hand to you, that's the thing Jesus will do. The good news here is that none of these doubters turned away from following Christ. No, they went on from this moment of doubt to turn the world upside down for Jesus. That's what Scripture says. And that's what doubters do when doubters deal with Jesus. Maybe it's because they doubted and were driven so often to deal with Jesus in their doubt, to go further in and deeper still with Jesus, that they were able to accomplish this great feat of turning the world upside down for Jesus.
course, I'm talking about doubt on Easter Sunday in part to get your attention. He, 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 he's so clever talking about doubt on Easter Sunday. So now I, I'm going to deliver to you. I'm going to deliver to you as of first importance what I also received right here. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. Those are the facts. Are those facts good news? Never doubt that. But when those facts ring hollow, when you aren't sure that your sins are included in our sins for which Jesus died, when you doubt that that could be true for you, don't deny your doubt. Instead, have face time with Jesus and talk about it. Lord, how could this be true for me, for this sin? When you aren't sure, when you read that he was resurrected on the third day, and you know that he has that resurrection power, but that resurrection power is not living in you, 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 you believe. Don't deny your doubt. Have some face time with Jesus. Talk to him about it. Talk to him about how it can be and is true. That resurrection power lives within you. Listen, and I'm done. Jesus has you. That's a fact. Jesus has you. Even in your doubt. He holds you. Even in your doubt. Just like he held Peter's hand. He will hold you fast. So be honest about your doubt. Be honest with the Lord. Don't ignore it. Don't deny it. Dig into your doubt. Dig into your doubt with Jesus. Wrestle through it with him. Because that's what doubters do. And when doubters do that, their faith in Christ, it just flourishes. These doubters went on to change the world for Christ. How might Jesus use doubters like you and like me who know what to do with our doubt? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is true, that it is an established fact that you invite all those who are weary and heavy burdened to come to you. So that's the fact that's true about you, Lord. That's the first step. Father, we know that sometimes the heavy burden that we carry is a burden of doubt. Just not sure. That's step two. So, Lord, help us to take that third step and to spend time face-to-face with you so that if we, you were to ask us as you asked Peter, why do you doubt? 
we could wrestle through that answer with you. We could go to your word. We could see all the truth about you and how that truth is about you. The person, the resurrected Savior who loves us. Lord, we want to do that always with our doubt. And it is our hope, Lord. It's our desire. As we dig into our doubt with you, that you would change us, that you would strengthen our faith from one degree of faith to the next, from one doubt to the next to the next, stronger and stronger, more faithful and more faithful as we see you more and more. Because, Lord, we want to have an impact in this world for Jesus' sake. So help us do what doubters do. Go off into you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.